Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Boris Johnson became the first Prime Minister to have been found to have committed a criminal offence while in office when he was issued with a police fine this week for attending a rule-breaking party. I understand the anger that many will feel that I myself fell short when it came to observing the very rules which the government I lead had introduced to protect the public. And I accept in all sincerity that people had the right to expect better. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fallout from the Partygate fines for the Prime Minister and his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. How significant is it that they are the first holders of their respective offices to have accepted a criminal offence? Is Johnson's position at risk? And what about Sunak? And what happened with the Chancellor's seven-hour silence? And has the government's new migration strategy distracted from the Partygate row? I'm delighted to be joined by our top trio to dissect the story of the week. Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley, plus our Political Correspondent Jasmine cameron Shaleshi, who joins us on the ground from Lee in Greater Manchester. Thank you all for joining the pod on this lovely Easter weekend. Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak imagined it was probably going to be a quiet recess, with the Ukraine war and the cost of living crisis rumbling on in the background of British politics. But at 1pm on Tuesday lunchtime, news arrived that neither expected. Both would be fined by the Metropolitan Police for attending a surprise birthday party for the PM in June 2020. There was shock in Number 10 and Number 11 Downing Street, followed by outrage from voters. A significant majority in three opinion polls said Johnson should resign. Opposition politicians felt the same way. Sakir Starmer, the Labour leader, called on Johnson and Sunak to quit to protect the integrity of their offices. My thoughts are with all of those who did the right thing and for whom this is a real slap in the face. They made the most unimaginable, heart-wrenching sacrifices Um, And many were overcome by guilt, guilt at not seeing elderly relatives, not going to funerals or weddings or even seeing the birth of their own children. But the guilty men are the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Robert Shrimsley, welcome back to the pod. Before we get into the weeds of what's happened this week, it's worth standing back to acknowledge just how far we've come. When these stories first broke back in December, Boris Johnson said there were no parties, there were no gatherings, there were no rules broken, and now he's been fined by the police, which throws that all up in the air and raises the questions that he's misled voters and misled MPs. How on earth did we get into this situation? The incident for which he's actually been fined, you know, the the bringing of a birthday cake into his office at the end of a meeting and other people who weren't due to be at that meeting, including his wife and and their decorators turning up to wish him happy birthday, was actually reported at the time it happened. If this was the only thing that had happened, you know, he might have got fined. We probably wouldn't be that exercised about it. But the point is, it's just one piece of a large puzzle in which 
the prime minister and his Downing Street operation and indeed others around him in government patently showed disregard for the very, very tough rules they imposed on the country all the way through um, the, the, the period of lockdown and the COVID crisis. Not only did they do that, thereby breaking the fundamental principle that lawmakers should obey the laws they themselves set. But then, as it began to emerge that there had been parties and disobedience of these rules towards the end of last year, he dissembled consistently about this. First of all, he didn't know of any parties. And if you remember, you know, his press secretary, Allegra Stratton, effectively sacrificed them for laughing about, for being caught on camera, laughing in sort of gallows humour about this. First, he didn't know. Then, oh, well, I, I, nobody informed me that any rules have been broken when, you know, everybody was living through this COVID crisis and shows clearly aware of what the rules were. And then throughout the whole process, the end of last year and the beginning of this, it was always somebody else's fault this had happened. These, these things have been thrown upon him. And so I think the double problem he has is that A, there have been a number of incidents, B, it happened overwhelmingly in the Downing Street operation, and that he sets the tone for that, and C, that rather than being genuinely contrite and apologetic as he attempted to show himself to be this week, he in fact spent the whole time trying to evade responsibility for all of these issues. So it's the cumulative effect of this and the fact that there are other events that we're still waiting for, and it's quite conceivable, though not certain, that he could actually end up getting two or three more fines. Now, we'll unpack all that in a moment, but Jim Picard, always great to have you joining us here. It was very clear from the people we've spoken to in the Prime Minister's inner circle that they did not genuinely think he was going to be fined. And we've written a whole bunch of stories about their legal defence, about the fact that Boris Johnson thought that they were work events, he was actually at work, he only attended for a short period of time. But then... Barristers and lawyers we've spoken to have said for quite some time, that's not how the Met see these things. They look at it on an event-by-event basis. Did the event contravene coronavirus legislation? If it did, who was there? And then we're going to find those people. And when those fines dropped on Tuesday lunchtime, it really was a big shock. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember talking to lawyers about this a few months ago when it, when it first broke. The thing is, when the, when the rules were set... There was very clear guidance for workplaces. The whole basic excuse of Johnson and his administration is that they were all there working anyway. So, of course, they were going to be kind of jostling up against one another and having the odd drink in between meetings and after meetings. But the guidance was really clear. It said that you should be avoiding being near anyone else in the workplace. You should have distance between you. You should have staggered tea breaks so you weren't sat next to someone else when you took a break. You you shouldn't even be in a lift with someone else. The rules at the time were incredibly stringent and it's very easy for us to forget two years after the event how draconian some of these rules were. You remember these stories about people who went out for their once a day mandated exercise and, and made the terrible mistake of sitting on a bench for 30 seconds and got moved on by the police. You remember students, young people getting fined £10,000 for having the temerity to have a drinks party. And there seems a sense from ministers from Boris Johnson downwards this week that they almost sound like they they still don't get it. They don't get why a large number of the public do care. And I I don't want to suggest that the anger is greater than it was in January. I don't think the public can sustain anger about this kind of thing for a prolonged period. But, you know, some of the excuses they've trotted out about how He was only in the room for nine minutes. It was just cake. If you listen to the people who were unable to visit dying relatives at the time, some of them would have loved nine minutes. And as one former Downing Street person said to me this week, if I drive a car down the motorway at 120 miles an hour for only nine minutes, it's still breaking the law. And 
Although none of us had ever heard of the Justice Minister, he resigned this week. Sorry to be disrespectful to Lord David Wilson, a distinguished and eminent uh, lawyer. It's very interesting that he, a, a specialist in the law, just couldn't feel that he could continue to work with these people. Well, Jasmine Cameron Schleschi, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. You and I have spoken to quite a lot of MPs this week. And in the past, they've always said that if the Prime Minister got fined, that would be a red line crossed and action would have to be taken. But then, I'm sure listeners will not be surprised to hear, they somewhat changed their minds that the atmosphere is quite different due to the war in Ukraine. And there's only 10 MPs, I think, have actually publicly said now the Prime Minister should go. What's their thinking? The Tory MPs are really figuring out their response at the moment. I think a big part of that is due to the timing. But if this had happened in January when the story was at its height, when emotions were at their height, and I think public anger was at its highest as well, I think for a lot of MPs will be in no brainer. Where we are right now, if it's happened during a recess, so MPs don't have access to each other in the same way they would when Parliament is sitting, they'll be able to chat to each other in person, figure out what everyone's thinking, but they don't really have the ability to do that right now. And there's also the big factor of the fact that there's a crisis going on in Ukraine. There are many MPs who have spoken to you have argued that actually, if we put letters in, there'll be a leadership contest, and that takes like months. And in the meantime, we'll have a lamed-up prime minister. You can't push any agenda through at the same time as trying to lead an international response. And so there's that consideration as well. But I think a lot of them this week are really talking to constituents. They're trying to work out what the public are feeling about this and whether or not public anger is the same as it was earlier in the year and whether people will take that anger and vote against them in a local election. I think that will be key. But I think the problem for a lot of Tory MPs is that there's a lot of things coming down the track. So you've got local elections, you've got the prospect of new fines, you've got the cost of living impact really ramping up. And so a lot of them don't want to speak out publicly. They want to see how things lie in the next few weeks, see what comes out, assess the mood, see what happens in the local elections, and then potentially make a stand if it's clear that Johnson's no longer tenable to the party. Well, there's been plenty of people in the cabinet defending Boris Johnson this week. This is what the Transport Secretary, Grant Chap, said on the morning after the fines were handed out. I'm not saying that the Prime Minister uh, isn't a flawed individual. We're all flawed in different ways. We all err. The question is, did somebody set out to do these things with malice? And actually, overall, is he doing a good job as Prime Minister? Which is why I do think it's relevant how he performs the rest of his job, the rest of his uh, task. Well, Jim, that's the argument many Tory MPs have been putting around. It's not just about these fines, it's about the wider context. And after the fines were issued and we heard that apology from the Prime Minister from Chequers, they were all out and about on Twitter saying it's all about the much wider job here. Do you think that holds much favour with the general public, though? Because as I said at the beginning, there's been a whole series of opinion polls that suggest a clear majority of voters say he should quit. Listening to Grant Shapps on the radio earlier this week was quite an impressive bit of dissembling. He was asked, were there parties in number 10? And the loyal, super loyal transport secretary said, I'm not going to second guess or speculate. At a point when the police have dished out more than 50 fines, you'd have thought most ministers at this point would be candid enough to admit that some kind of events might have taken place. But in terms of the public opinion, I mean, Jasmine is out and about talking to real-life human beings today, so it's better place for me to, to, to answer that immediate one. But my gut feeling on this, just from the people I know, is that you know, they were furious back in January, including an awful lot of Conservative voters. Some were absolutely furious. But you know, a few months down the line, the fact that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister's wife have had the fines doesn't necessarily move the dial, because if you presume that 
he was guilty all along, which a lot of these people did, then the fines are just kind of confirmation of what you already thought. You know, I was talking to an MP and minister this week who said that in his constituency, every single person he spoke to in recent months thought, thought that Johnson was guilty. So in a weird sort of way, the fines may not actually change things. And I think you know, when it comes to it, Vladimir Putin has done him a favor by invading Ukraine because, you know, even though they were offenses, and yes, they're incredibly offensive to, to people, especially the relatives of those who died during COVID and all the rest of it, you know, there is a reasonable case that he's doing quite a good job when it comes to Ukraine. He's being held as a hero, genuinely by people you know, under siege by Russia in that country. And public opinion can be a fickle thing. I, I suspect that there'll be long-term damage about Boris Johnson's believability and trustworthiness. Uh, and the same minister I spoke to did make the point that he said, you know, even if this doesn't get him, it, does, it is a reminder that there are elements of his character and personality which will always be with us. And therefore, if it's not this, something else will inevitably come along and that one could topple him. But you know, critics of Boris Johnson often say that, that his demise is just around the corner. And so far, they've been always proved wrong. Well, Robert, let's now look at the Chancellor and his role in all this, because I think it was always in the ether that the Prime Minister could be fined, but I don't think anyone really expected Rishi Sunak to receive a fine. And I think there was, again, total shock in his circle in the Treasury when that fine landed earlier this week. And even some of his biggest critics inside government have felt he's been quite hard done by by this. But once again, we've seen that questionable political judgment of the chance that he got the fine the same time as Johnson. And we didn't hear from him from, I think, seven hours of which there's been quite a lot of reports he had something of a wobble and thought about potentially resigning. Do you think it was a mistake for him to stay in government or was it the right call? That's a decision essentially about how he sees his political future. I mean, obviously, the context um, for Rishi Sunak, it came at the end of a week when he'd been absolutely hammered, essentially over the non-domicile tax status of his wife. He's seen his family attacked. That's never easy. She's had to make a decision that's going to cost them a great deal of money. It's hurt him personally. And people now saying, well, we don't think he can ever get to be prime minister and that possibly he's going to have to be moved as chancellor before the election. So his Star was very much on the wane anyway. Then he gets whacked with this fine. And you know, I don't know if you remember that when this first all broke, one of the arguments made about Boris Johnson's birthday was that you know, he was ambushed by Kate. But Rishi Sunak really was ambushed by the Kate. So it is easy to feel a bit sorry for him on this one. He clearly did anguish over what to do, given his reluctance to support the Prime Minister when this stuff first started coming out a few months back, he clearly felt, a, and I know that he felt a moral concern about supporting the Prime Minister if he'd broken his own lockdown laws. And then he's caught up in this. And I think the combination of, you know, having had a really bad week, his family in the crosshairs, and then this too, did give him reason to waver. I think if he had resigned, it would have made life almost impossible for the Prime Minister to carry on because, so well, if the Chancellor can see this as a resigning issue, why can't you? But in terms of his own future career, I think it would have been very difficult for him to resign and then resume his career. So I think it would have been the end for him as well had he gone. And Jim, if we take it along with all the other stories about Rishi Sunak, where is his political standing now? Because those tales about the non-dom status of his wife, the fact the Chancellor held a green card for 19 months while he was in the Treasury, plus six years while he was an MP, have created this sense that Sunak is, I don't know what's the way of putting it, he's not entirely focused on 
the political instincts needed to do such a high-level job as Chancellor, never mind as Prime Minister. I think there's been quite open talk amongst Tory MPs this week saying that maybe he'll never get the top job and he could even walk away from politics entirely. The complicated thing with Rishi Sunak is that he's obviously quite a good communicator, he presents well, he looks good, but he hasn't necessarily been tested politically until now. And during the pandemic, he'd only been the Chancellor for a few weeks, remember he came up with a package of proposals in the early days of of COVID-19 and he had to come back a few weeks later with a dramatically bigger package of measures to assist people through the crisis, primarily the furlough scheme, which was something we've never seen before in this country, cost a fortune and prevented massive economic meltdown. And therefore, he was always seen in this positive light because loads of people owed their their jobs and their businesses to him. He was Mr. Handout Good News, like Sweeties the whole time. And now in these tougher times where the Treasury needs to deal with the financial hangover from that £400 billion of expenditure, it's a lot harder to be Mr. Popular. And I think as well, just the fact that he lives this fairly gilded lifestyle, his, his wife is the daughter of an Indian tycoon and is herself worth an estimated £700 million. He himself is worth a couple of hundred million from his own successful career at a hedge fund, or in fact two hedge funds and at Goldman Sachs. And therefore... This sort of gilded life where, you know, you own a five million pound place in in California and you live quite a luxurious lifestyle. I think think people are prepared to turn a blind eye to politicians being successful and being wealthy. But there's something about the sort of super rich nature of his success, which during a cost of living crisis where you're putting up taxes and energy bills are going through the roof, it always has the potential to rather tarnish his, his political reputation. The stuff in the last few days, if we were to believe a YouGov poll, they're suggesting that his status, his net favorability has tumbled by net 26 points, which is an incredible fall from grace. And it places him, I think from memory, at minus 20, for the first time less popular than Boris Johnson at minus 19, compared to Keir Starmer at minus 5. Overseas listeners might note that British politicians are that often don't have net favorability above zero. So, you know, it's a difficult time for him. I And I totally I totally disagree with this idea that if he had walked, Boris Johnson would have then been totally vulnerable to everyone bringing him down. I, I think all the factors that were in place in January protecting Boris Johnson, i.e. he's got a huge majority, he's won loads of things in the past, and Tory MPs like a bit of self-preservation, and they think that he may still have the winning political magic, even if he's tarnished. There's a lot of inertia in the Conservative Party as well. I think all those factors come together to mean that Boris Johnson could have quite easily replaced Rishi Sunak with somebody else, and life would have possibly just kept on going. I do think it's worth adding that, I mean, I think it's the fall of Rishi Sunak in, in, in terms of public opinion and, the dam- and, and among his own MPs. He's actually, while quite helpful to Boris Johnson, is an incredibly serious blow to the Conservative Party. Because not only was he the plan B if Boris Johnson fell for any number of reasons, or if the country got sick of Boris Johnson's style and wanted a more managerial leader, the Tories had a plan B in place. He was, until relatively recently, a genuinely popular politician among the public. He was liked, he was well regarded, he had star quality. And he's damaged probably, you know, beyond repair in terms of being a prime ministerial candidate certainly any time soon. And the Tories have lost that now. And although there are, there's always someone ready to step up and be leader, they've lost a genuinely popular figure. And I think that's a big blow to them in the long run. 
with Jasmine. We were just talking to Jim about how this has been received, but you've been out and about in Lee in Greater Manchester to see what the reaction outside of SW1 has been to the Partygate fans. What have you found from your time on the stump? It's been a really mixed bag. So everyone I've spoken to has been unanimously agreed that the Prime Minister acted in a way that clearly broke the law. But I think the big question for many people is, well, what happens next? There are a lot of people I've spoken to who said, well, you know, it really is one rule for them, one rule for us. And actually, if any other person broke the law or was hit with a, a six-person notice, they would have to pay it. There would be a, a tougher consequence. And there is a sense of feeling, well, you know, you sort of got away with something that an ordinary person wouldn't. But then others I've spoken to have said, well, actually, this seems to be a little bit overhyped. This is an individual who had COVID himself, was hospitalized with COVID. If he takes it seriously, he's been leading the government's response naturally. Perhaps it's you know, cutting in a bit more flat. But what I think is particularly striking is that I don't think it's been party gate that sort of turns people off the Conservative Party favour seat. The cost of the Conservative Energy Bill, it really came up in every single conversation I had. And I think if there's a sense that the, the UK is being led by a party that perhaps is you know, not consistent on rules, not consistent on telling the truth, and people are feeling as though their bills are going up and they're feeling as though their lives aren't improving under the party. I think the combination of those two things is what's going to see people move away from the party. But at the moment, I think people are just concerned about day-to-day lives. How do I pay for things? Yes, well, if we look at the situation of Rishi Sunak and the question about his wife's tax affairs and holding a US green card, and is he going to ever make the top job? It still feels as if the cost of living is going to be much more damaging to him and to Boris Johnson in the medium term than the fines, particularly when we think about the next election two years away. I think that's definitely true. The people I spoke to, they, they really praise Rishi Sunak for introducing measures like furlough. There's a sense that People are grateful that you recognise the severity of the crisis and acted quickly. Some people I spoke to said, well, you know, people are always going to ask more. There's only so much you can do when there are lots of external factors impacting the cost of living crisis. So it's not just, you know, the UK government's sort of domestic policy. There are things like Ukraine, the sort of wider geopolitical issues that are outside any government. And then other people have said, well, hang on a minute, we seem to have a lot of money for other policies when they want to, but when it comes to helping ordinary people, Suddenly, there's only so much we can see. And so I really think the next few months are going to be interesting. If it does become clear that people are still really going up high and there's a sense that the packages that have been placed by the government aren't adequate enough, I think we're going to see a very backlash against the Chancellor. Now, let's think about where this thing goes next, because the PERDA period for May's local elections has begun, and that means Sue Gray's full report into the Partygate scandal isn't going to be published until well into May. So we could see a situation with a drip, drip of fines continuing over the next couple of weeks. And there is a widespread expectation that the Prime Minister will get further fines, given the quite low bar the Met have set with their first fine. So you could see a pretty tricky political situation, Robert, for the Tories, that you would all these fines building up, then you go into May's elections where the voters give the Tories a good old kicking, then you get the full Sue Gray report with plenty of excruciating detail about the culture and then the full parties. Do you think that is then the final moment of when the Prime Minister could be in danger or will it never actually get to that? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he's he's certainly running through his lives at an extraordinary rate, but you never know that they're exhausted. I think the fundamental fact is his his fate lies in the hands of Conservative MPs. And that means it's a very simple calculation. It's he will not be toppled until their fear of losing their own seat and losing the next election exceeds their fear of doing anything as brave as bringing down their own leader. That's the fundamental calculation. So nothing will happen before May. 
We'll see what happens in the local elections. We'll see what happens with the other fines. We'll see how his, his and his party's standing is with the public as this draws on, as the economic conditions tighten. And MPs will look at this and make a judgment at some point that says either we can still win with him because Labour isn't doing it, or alternatively, he's going to take us down. We need a new face. And that's always been the only judgment Conservatives are going to make. They're not there yet, but you certainly can't rule out them getting there. Now, Jim, there's been a quite significant new policy announcement this week on Thursday. After the party gate fines had landed, Boris Johnson went down to Kent and he delivered this speech where he announced a different approach to dealing with asylum seekers and migration to the UK. So from today, our new migration and economic development partnership will mean that anyone entering the UK illegally, as well as those who have arrived illegally, since January the 1st, may now be relocated to Rwanda. This innovative approach, driven by our shared humanitarian impulse and made possible by Brexit freedoms, will provide safe and legal routes for asylum while disrupting the business model of the gangs. Now, the term dead cat is obviously far too overused in politics, but is this an example to try and draw a line and move on from the partygate fines? Because, as I said, we are in the Purda period for local elections, and this policy's been in the ether for some time, and it seems quite odd it's landed just before the Easter weekend. Yes, this is one of these things where it's not as if they suddenly kind of made it up in the back of a taxi like the thick of it, although that does... Now and again, this is one that's been in development for ages. It was first reported, I think, in the Times in about June last year. The Times also reported 10 days ago that Boris Johnson wanted to announce it last week, and yet everyone agreed that it wasn't really in ship shape in Bristol fashion to announce it then. And therefore, there is a sense that it has been hastily brought forward where you know, not all of the details have been properly nailed down on, on how it's all going to work in practice. So yes, it does distract attention from Partygate, it's a fascinating policy in and of itself. You know, we we reported at the FT, I think over a year ago, we had that succession of stories. Do you remember where we were suggesting that they were going to use wave machines in the English Channel? I think that was one of your scoops, Seb, to repel boats back towards France. I think my scoop was one about floating walls in the Channel. Our colleague Peter Foster had a story about them potentially sending people to Ascension Island. And if those seem quite wacky, I think sending people four or 5,000 miles away to Rwanda sort of tops it for wackiness. But Boris Johnson was very clear in his speech in Kent that it is about deterrence. And if all goes well for the government, they hopefully, from their perspective, will not have to send tens of thousands of people there because if you're on a beach in France about to board a dangerous dinghy manned by evil people smugglers, then you might think twice about it if you think or know that the likelihood is you're going to end up in Rwanda and nowhere near Britain. So it's all about deterrence. They're quite realistic that quite a few people will still be processed in this country. They're in fact building a new processing, they call it a Greek-style processing centre in Yorkshire in an old RAF base. But I mean, it is an incredibly eye-catching and, and inverted commas novel policy, which has attracted the ire and the fury and the disgust of opposition MPs and also of charities who are very likely to pursue this in the courts and, and potentially bring it down on legal grounds. Well, as you said, Jim, it has been heavily criticised by opposition politicians, but also by several charities, groups. Um, Eva Solomon of the Refugee Council said this to the BBC. 
every prime minister since Winston Churchill has always stuck to, that you grant people a fair hearing because that is the principle that the UN Convention, which we were one of the founding signatories of, enshrines. And really, this proposal the government is putting forward just simply isn't going to work because it won't stop people coming. But the way to address this is not to ship people across the globe to Rwanda. Well, Robert, when you hear that, you can see why it's in a very unpopular policy. But I guess the calculation in Downing Street is very straightforward, that they, they think the general public wants a much tougher attitude on asylum seekers, and particularly the small boats crossing the English Channel, which have proven a big headache for the Johnson government. Because when Priti Patel came in as Home Secretary in the summer of 2019, she said they would 100% end this. They haven't done that. In fact, it's got a lot worse. And so they've introduced this to do something about taking a lot of inspiration, I think, from Australia, that we know the former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott has been a close advisor to Priti Patel on this, and they did these offshore processing centres. Do you think it's going to work, and what will be the political benefits, of any, for the government? Well, there are two ways of measuring whether it's going to work. It's annoying all the people you'd expect it to annoy. I saw what I saw one poll showing they had something like 60% support among Conservative voters. So, I think it will be reasonably popular with the people the Prime Minister is aiming it at. And I think that's crucial. I know, you know, although we talk about dead cat, we, we throw these terms around a lot. Actually, this has been an issue that's been really obsessing the Prime Minister for a long time. He's been pressurised by Nigel Farage on this. They're worried about the UKIP-type voters. And so he really felt the need to show the government was acting. And this has the advantage of being a very eye-catching, headline-grabbing policy, which will seem to be a deterrent and therefore might take the edge off people's anger. I mean, 28,000 people came in last year across the channels. That's an awful lot of people. Whether it will work, I think also depends on whether it actually works. And there's another question, because if you look at the Australian data, the Australian government spent something like £400 million last year to deal with 230-odd people in offshore centres. The government so far is spending £120 So you can get a sense of how expensive it is to make this work and to deal with the numbers that the UK is dealing with. And unless it has a major deterrent effect, I'm not sure that it will see that many people pushed abroad. And you might, after a while, after this headline initiative, start seeing the Farage type saying, yeah, well, it's all really well you did this, but it's, it's not actually working. I mean, if this halved the number of people coming across the channel, that would still be 14,000, and half would be one of the most enormous public policy successes ever. I think the problem is they may raise expectations that they're dealing with something and then find that it's not actually working. But there's no question that today... The people who they're trying to appeal to will look at this and and, and give it an approving nod. I think on the money front, this is one of the big holes in their explanation of the policy, which is that the £120 million that they've announced is the money going to Rwanda to basically pay for infrastructure and to deal with these, these people coming in. It doesn't seem to address the total cost of the scheme, which would involve them chartering huge numbers of planes to fly thousands of people to the centre of Africa. And charities have come up with an estimate of £1.4 billion. And I can tell you that when I put this to the Home Office, was this a realistic number? They couldn't say one way or another how much this is going to cost, either in the short term or in the long term. Well, Jim, Robert and Jasmine, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us, all the usual places. You receive your podcast and you'll get the episodes every Saturday morning. You could also leave us a positive review and a nice rating. And just before we go, just want to mention the FT's new product, FT Edit. If you're fed up of doom scrolling, even on Easter Sunday and searching through endless news feeds, then our new iPhone app helps you read less and 
understand more. Each day, you get eight pieces of in-depth journalism handpicked by our top editors that will hopefully inform, explain, and maybe even surprise. You can just search FT Edit on the App Store. Your first month is free, and it is 99p a month for six months after that. It's certainly worth your time. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Joss Gaber-Doyen and Yang Sixworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.